You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to Yahweh. And Yahweh said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of Yahweh to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks, and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But Yahweh will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us, and go out before us, and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of Yahweh. And Yahweh said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado. We have episode 726 before us, more than behind us. And this is Monday, October 2nd, 2023. I just read for you for Samuel chapter 8 in the Old Testament. And as quick as it began, it would seem that Samuel's time as judge, something like the ruler, of the people of Israel is at a close because behold, you are old, Samuel. <laughs> Look, 
is another way you could say behold. That would be more in the common vernacular. We don't say behold so much unless we're being facetious and trying to hearken back to more of a medieval mindset for trying to be old timey. We might say behold, but otherwise we say look, right? And we say that all the time. And it's the same sentiment. Look, look, Samuel, you're old. (laughs) You're old and your sons don't walk in your ways. And you know what? That's a compliment to Samuel, but it's something of a backhanded compliment. As virtuous, as steady, as much of a straight shooter as Samuel has been, his sons do not walk in Samuel's ways. That is to say, Samuel doesn't walk in his son's ways. He doesn't take bribes. He doesn't pervert justice, but his sons do, unfortunately. His sons sound all too much like Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who God struck dead because they were corrupt. Samuel's sons take bribes. They're exactly the wrong sort of judge. You don't want judges who are going to take bribes and pervert justice. But Samuel's sons are those kinds of judges. And the people of Israel, maybe to their credit, after a fashion, they don't want those kinds of judges over them. And they know Samuel's time is short. Give us a king, they say. Give us a king to rule over us like the nations. Samuel does not take kindly to this. He doesn't like it. He doesn't like to be told that they want a king. He feels personally rejected. And if, after a fashion, he is offended that his own sons are being rejected, this opposition to a king over Israel is really about his legacy. Is his legacy how he has personally conducted himself Or does his legacy live on in his sons being judges over Israel as well? Actually, what's interesting is this is kind of the first time that you see the authority over the nation writ large being passed or the attempt being made to pass it from father to sons. Otherwise, you see authority within a family unit or within a clan being passed from father to son. But with Samuel and his sons, They are not just wielding authority over a family unit or a clan. They're wielding authority over a nation, the nation of Israel. And it's being rejected. And what's curious about this is in the process of reading Samuel Rutherford's Lex Rex, The Law and the King, this is one of the things he pushes back on most strongly and I think most convincingly in the divine right of kings theology, political theology, that was prevalent in his day and previously among some of the kings of the British Isles, some some of the kings of Scotland and Ireland and Wales and England, but especially England and Scotland, pushing back on this idea that the kingship can be passed from father to son to son to son and that that's enough, right? That's enough for somebody to be recognized as a legitimate king over a country that his father was king. How do you know he should be king? Well, his father was king and he's the oldest son. That's how it works. Well, yeah, sometimes. Sometimes that's how it works. And when it's allowed, it's because there is something else to go on. It's not enough. Now, it might be something, but it's not sufficient. And in the case of Samuel's sons being judges, it's not sufficient. And so Samuel, after conferring with all the elders, and this isn't just the masses, this 
is the elders of Israel meeting with Samuel at Ramah. After Samuel meets with them, he goes to Yahweh. It says, verse 6, the thing displeased Samuel. Samuel prayed to Yahweh. Yahweh said, obey the voice of the people. Vox populi, obey the voice of the people. Now, wait a second. Wait a second. Who are we supposed to obey? God or the people? (laughs) Well, in this case, God is saying, obey the voice of the people. And you'll see in due time, and actually even just within this chapter, you don't have to wait long, not at least to get the concept, you'll see more of the practical side of it as we continue on in the Old Testament. But as you'll see, the penalty or the discipline or the negative consequences, the punishment, if you want to call it that, is in giving the people what they want. Oh, you want a king over you. Okay, well, just so you know, you should know what it's going to be like. God says, not just obey the voice of the people. He also says, solemnly warn them. Show them the ways of the king who will rule over them, who will reign over them. And all the people are thinking is benefits. They cite all of the positive associations, accoutrements that come along with having a king, like the nations have kings. Yeah, you know, we want a king to uh, judge us, right? Yeah, you've judged us, but you're old. Look, you're old. We need someone new to judge us. How about a king? A, A king could judge us, right? They're thinking in terms of having a king, and this comes up further down, starting in verse 19 and 20. There shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations. So they want to fit in. They're trying to keep up with the Joneses. We want to be like the nations. We want to fit in to the community of nations. The international community has this standard. We want to be like the nations around us, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. So we want a judge, we want a leader, and we want a warrior. And when Samuel takes offense, he takes personal offense at this demand from the people. And it's a command, not just a request. They're not asking nicely. They say, no, there shall be a king over us. You're not listening Listen, Samuel, we want a king. We will have a king. Give us a king. God says they haven't rejected you. At least they haven't rejected you any more than they've rejected me. This has been their way. This has been the way that this people has been stiff-necked. They've rejected me at every turn. I'm not sufficient to be king over Israel in their minds. They want a king they can see, hear, touch. They want a king like themselves. Okay, obey their voice and make them a king. So Samuel says, go every man to his city. And that's how the chapter concludes. That's the end of the chapter. And if you'll notice, it's probably not lost on you, the intro music I played for this episode to transition us from the reading to thoughts on the reading was a little ditty from The Lion King. The beginning of The Lion King opens with this song, The Circle of Life, There is no new thing under the sun. Remember that. This is the way of people, period. You see this again and again played out. There are cycles to cultures, peoples, nations, civilizations. They go through periods where they're content to have a looser and 
more autonomous, more individualistic, polity. There are times where that gives way to more representative government, more democratic institutions, more republic, less every man just doing what's right in his own eyes. At a certain point, the people say, hey, this is not working. This is chaos. We need laws. We need law and order. We should have a republic, madam, if you can keep it. But then historically, it's not been the case that republics can keep their selves together. And so in due time, typically republics at a certain point, if the laws stop making sense and lawlessness rules where formerly they were ruled by laws in that place, a strong man will rise to power. Whatever the mechanisms are by which leaders are picked at a certain point, the people will cry out for a king, for a judge, for a strong man who will impose order based on his judgment. Let's make this really simple. Even if it's arbitrary, it would be a relief to not have it be an amalgamation of arbitrariness, chaos, tumult. The markets love certainty. We can't have the stability that we need for economic growth and sustainability, private wealth accumulation and safeguarding. We can't have that when it's all just this pendulum swing wildly from one end of the political spectrum to the other. We want a strong man. We want the king. Give us a king. And if the king is a good king, then there is peace, actually. A good king, and here we're speaking in relative terms, a generally virtuous, just, fair, equitable, honorable, inspiring king can bring peace where otherwise and previously there was turbulence. But then a bad king brings quite a lot of sadness, consternation, frustration. This is why you have to have checks and balances. This is why you want to have checks and balances But at a certain point, if the checks and balances are not working and they are being actually bribed, there's so much greasing of the wheels that the checks and balances don't even work because the judges accept bribes and they pervert justice. Well, then sometimes people will hold their nose and they'll become so acclimated to corruption that they say even an unvirtuous strong man would be preferable to a whole lot of unvirtuous corrupt bribe-taking judges. And so think about the Lion King. And this has been somewhat of an inside joke at our church, Summit View Community Church in Greeley slash Evans, Colorado. There was an analogy made with the Lion King trying to highlight the idea in 1 John chapter 3, for instance, in the New Testament, that we should remember who we are, like Mufasa says to Simba in the Lion King, remember who you are. You are my son. Some said, oh, I'm not really comfortable with us getting our theology from the Lion King. And then others were like, hey, no, we're not getting our theology. We were just illustrating one little point for those who are more familiar with and they have more affection for the Lion King than they do for the Bible. They're more familiar with Disney themes than they are with biblical themes. Those people needed a parable. Here you go. Here's the Lion King. You've heard that it was said, but I say unto you, kind of a thing. Nevertheless, as humorous as that back and forth, that interplay was, actually think of, for those of you who are not always just childlike, some of you are childish, and you're more familiar with Disney classics than you are with your own country's history or the history of Western civilization or biblical history, 
For your sake, as a mercy to you, consider how Mufasa is this good, noble king, and he's betrayed. He's betrayed by Scar, and you might say he turned a blind eye for too long. He kind of kept Scar in check, but then he didn't, and he was ultimately killed for it. He was betrayed by his own brother, murdered by his own brother, and as is typically the case in such circumstances, Mufasa's son is chased into exile. He was supposed to be killed too, but he was chased into exile by those worthless hyenas. And when Scar is king, you find out how dangerous it can be for so much authority, so much power to be concentrated in one individual. And what ends up happening? Everything gets ruined. There's overhunting. The hyenas are the instrument by which Scar came to power and he gives them free reign. It's kind of like actually Joe Biden. Joe Biden is kind of a Scar sort of a figure. He lets the hyenas run roughshod over the lions. What had previously been the lion's share, the hyenas are going to take and they're going to kill everything. They're going to kill everything. And if they don't eat it all, whatever, who cares? They're idiots. They're fools. They're corrupt. And it's not until the return of the rightful heir, who is Simba, and the battle between Simba and Scar, it's not until then that you have a restoration of prosperity economically, if you want to put it in those terms, because there's a restoration of justice. You can't have economic prosperity when there's corruption of justice, when there is bribe-taking and lawlessness. You can't have economic prosperity. You can't have economic growth. Everyone groans. Everybody's oppressed. Well, Samuel's warning against kings, reads as follows. They were thinking all of the benefits, right? They're thinking, ah, we want a king, if you will, if you'll permit me, like Mufasa, right? We want a good king. They're thinking the best men, the best men that they hear the best stories about who are kings over the nations. They want a man like that. They want a king like that. They're thinking benefits, right? All the benefits. Look at all the upsides. Here's what Samuel tells them. These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. So here you have the other side of the coin. If you want a king to lead you in battle, he's going to insist that your sons be drafted into his army. He's going to want a professional army. He's going to want guards who are the best at what they do. Their best skills are honed and sharpened to be able to protect him in battle and to fight and to win battles and to win wars against your adversaries or adversaries when they make war against you, these men will be constantly on high alert to fight. He's going to take your sons. That's a cost, not just benefits. He's not going to be fighting single-handedly all your battles. You maybe have a distorted view of this from the judges you've been blessed with very graciously by God. He's going to draft your sons. But there's more. He's going to appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground and reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. So here it's not going to be just the young men who are fighting age and the prime of life. It's not just their best years. He's going to enlist them for service. It's also, when we're talking commanders of thousands, commanders of fifties, we're talking about middle-aged men as well. Men with experience, men with knowledge, 
men who have studied, men who are accustomed to wielding authority. He's going to pull them out of your communities and put them to work in commanding various numbers of men, various sizes of military unit. But also, you can't march an army on an empty stomach. He's going to have some of these men plowing his ground, reaping his harvest. I mean, he's not going to be able to do that and also fight your battles and also judge you. He's going to take you and your sons to make his fields profitable. And oh, by the way, oh, by the way, he's going to take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. So he's got to have a way. He's got to have an incentive structure for loyal servants to be rewarded, to be recognized. And it's going to be arbitrary. Sometimes it's going to make sense. He's going to take from somebody who wasn't such a good character and give to somebody else. But all that inheritance business, it being passed down from one generation to the next, to the next, to the next, he's going to upset that on a whim. If he thinks that that guy's field, that guy's vineyard, that guy's olive orchard is the best, that's what it'll be predicated on, not actually on whether this or that man was a bad man who now needs to be punished, who now needs to be taken down a few pegs. He's going to take land based on whether it's the best land, the most productive land. What you'll be left with is the scraps. You're going to hope that your land is not too attractive. It's not too appealing. You're going to hold back developing your land too much because eminent domain is going to be cited, something like eminent domain anyways, for the good of the kingdom to reward faithful servants. And if you're not a faithful servant, well, you'd better start acting like one. You'd better not question. You'd better not criticize. You'd better not disagree. You would better not push back on anything the king wants because if he's displeased, he might just decide that, okay, whether your fields, vineyards, olive orchards are the best or not, they'll do. They'll find some excuse to give them to somebody else. Yeah, this guy needs them more than you. Yeah, how's that going to go? But then there's more. Right? It's not just your sons. It's not just your land. Verse 13, he will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. When it says he will take, remember you're giving the authority, you're giving the power to this man to go and fight foreign adversaries. He's going to also use that power domestically to, one, expand his power and expand his own wealth And for two, he's going to use that power and wealth once he's accumulated it to not ask for your daughters, not to request your daughters, not to try and convince you that your daughters will be very well compensated if they are employed by him, if they serve him. No, 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 no. It says he will take, he will take your daughters. How's that going to strike you in the moment? Particularly if he's not a scrupulous man. He's not a moral man. He's not a kind man. If he is harsh, capricious, impatient, cruel at times, and he just announces, hey, I'm taking your daughter. Your daughter is requested to serve the king. What's it going to be predicated on? Well, similar to who's going to be appointed to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, similar to what the taking of land and redistributing of wealth in that regard is going to be predicated on. It's going to be the best land, not necessarily from those who have done anything to deserve having their land confiscated. He's going to take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, bakers, 
How do you think he's going to choose which daughters? Is it going to be all the daughters in the whole kingdom? Well, probably not the ugly ones. Probably not the ones with a lazy eye and no chin. The ones who are overweight or too skinny. It's probably not going to be the daughters who have bad hygiene, bad breath. It's probably not going to be the daughters who are ugly. It's probably going to be the most beautiful daughters. Why? Because he's going to enjoy having them around him and they will be building into his reputation, his glory. When there are diplomatic relations that need to be worked through with foreign countries, either to enact trade deals or make alliances, make threats, respond to threats. These daughters, being the perfumers, being the cooks, being the bakers, they're going to be beautiful daughters, your most beautiful daughters. And in due time, it won't just be that they're perfumers and cooks and bakers, as we see in the person of Solomon, for instance, who has 700 wives and 300 concubines. Plenty of those probably came from surrounding nations, but plenty of those, you can be assured, came from Israel because they were close at hand. And as reputation preceded certain beauties in the land, Solomon said, oh yes, to answer your question, yes, I would like her sent for, have her added to my household. Yes, that one too. Sure, okay, yeah, bring her here. Let's try her out with serving in some capacity in the palace. And if I like her, if I take a liking to her, well then, we'll just add her to my harem. That's probably how a lot of that went. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. So that's really what this boils down to. What we're talking about is not just you're going to be subject, you're going to get all the benefits of having this guy in authority over you. There's also the cost. The cost is you're slaves now. You're no longer free. Where you were slaves to foreign peoples, like the Philistines, for instance, you were given over to them to be oppressors. They would be punishment after a fashion for your faithlessness. Now, a king you've demanded will enslave you. To make him a king, you will also keep this in mind, be under his authority. And he's going to exercise that authority. He's going to take not just your sons, not just your daughters, not just your fields. He's going to also take your servants. He's going to take your livestock. He's going to take a tenth of your income. So he's going to institute a 10% income tax, which sounds really great, actually. When that was like, ooh, wow, a tenth? Really? That's on top of the tenth that we're giving to the Levites? 20%? That's still 7% less than what I'm paying. Sounds not half bad, actually. Samuel says at the last, in that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but Yahweh will not answer you in that day. You've chosen your fate, you will have made your bed, and God will let you just lay in it. It will be your own fault, so be it. On your own heads be it, you don't know what you're asking for, but okay, here you go. Everybody, go back to a city. Wild stuff, wild stuff. Switching gears, though, let's talk about monarchy in more of a general sense. And let's go over to Wikipedia and let's read the first few paragraphs of the Wikipedia entry for monarchy. Wikipedia, the free encyclopedia. This is crowdsourced. 
Sometimes you got to be careful about that. Actually, you should always be careful about that, but it's not a bad resource to amalgamate. What's the consensus on a thing? Wikipedia says a monarchy is a form of government in which a person, the monarch, is head of state for life or until abdication. The political legitimacy and authority of the monarch may vary from restricted and largely symbolic to autocratic, fully autocratic, absolute monarchy, and can span across executive, legislative, and judicial domains. The succession of monarchs has mostly been hereditary, often building dynastic periods. However, elective and self-proclaimed monarchies have also often occurred throughout history. Aristocrats, though not inherent to monarchies, often serve as the pool of persons from which the monarch is chosen and to fill the constituting institutions, e.g. diet, court, giving many monarchies oligarchic elements. Monarchs can carry various titles, such as emperor, empress, king, queen, Monarchies can form federations, personal unions, and realms with vassals through personal association with the monarch, which is a common reason for monarchs carrying several titles. Monarchies were the most common form of government until the 20th century, by which time republics had replaced many monarchies. Today, 43 sovereign nations in the world have a monarch, including 15 commonwealth realms that share King Charles III as their head of state. Other than that, there is a range of Subnational monarchical entities, most of the modern monarchies tend to be constitutional monarchies, retaining under a constitution unique legal and ceremonial roles for the monarch, exercising limited or no political power, similar to heads of state in a parliamentary republic. So about this, what is this word, monarch? The next section on Wikipedia gives us the etymology. The word monarch, late Latin, Monarchia comes from the ancient Greek word monarchias, derived from monos, one, single, and arco, to rule. Compare archon, ruler, chief. It referred to a single, at least nominally absolute ruler. In current usage, the word monarchy usually refers to a traditional system of hereditary rule, as elective monarchies are quite rare. Now, they say that elective monarchies are quite rare. But here's where I'll bring in a little bit more Samuel Rutherford to color our understanding. And what Samuel Rutherford would point out is it's the people Samuel is told to obey. God says to Samuel, obey the voice of the people. Obey the vox populi. Obey them. So who is choosing to have a king? It's the people. For that matter, too, as Samuel Rutherford points out, you have a couple of mechanisms, humanly speaking, by which a king is decided. One is hereditary, but then when you don't have a previous king to make his son now the king, what you get is people having to decide who are we going to make a king over us. So you might have, as is the case in the Old Testament, a priest, a representative, a spokesperson, someone who's regarded as a good judge of character, even if the reason they're a good judge of character is because God is actually the one judging character and telling that person in the person of Samuel, for instance, who will be king and anointing that person. You have that person basically serving as an elector, but then their representative. The elders are representing their tribes and their clans and their heads of household are the men, but the elders 
speak for the people as their representatives when they say to Samuel, give us a king. Look, you're old. Give us a king to judge us. God says, obey the voice of the people. But then at various times, it says that all Israel gathered together as one man at this or that place and made so-and-so, fill in the blank, whoever it was at the time, king over Israel. So the people make a king. And you might say, well, elective monarchies are quite rare, but then it's the consent of the governed. If the people will consent to be ruled by this king, he's king. Where you get restrictions placed on kings, that's also when the consent of the governed only goes so far. Okay, we will consent to you having these various roles, these various responsibilities, this authority over these matters, but we're going to limit your power. You have to share power with parliament, for instance, or whoever. If we see you getting carried away and you're exceeding the bounds of your authority, what we see, for instance, in the history of the British Isles is we see at various times the people stepping in, stepping up, sending delegates, sending new representatives on their behalf to lead armies or to file suit or to tell the king, to advise the king on their behalf. That's enough. Either we're going to limit your power and you're going to submit to that. We revoke our consent because you're being lawless or you're being wicked, you're being corrupt, you're being cruel, capricious, or we're going to remove you from this position. The king is under the law after a fashion, but then it's messy. The big idea is monos, one single, arco, to rule, one to rule. That's the big idea of having a monarch. That's what Israel wants. And sometimes even today, that's what people in the United States, for instance, want. Lots of organizations have one person who has the final authority over the group of people and whatever we call them, they are something like a king if they are over a whole country, over a whole nation. There's something like a king. Our president, the president of the United States is like a king. There are a lot of monarchical powers concentrated in the person of the president of the United States. We have an elective process. Every four years, we decide, do we want a new king, so to speak? Do we want to keep the king that we have? There's a regularity to it, which is also conservative. Hey, you don't like this one? Give it a couple of years. Just bide your time. He won't be in there forever. Or if that's not acceptable, we're not necessarily going to remove him, but we're going to curtail him, he has to share power, right? He has to share power with the legislative branch of the federal government. He has to share power with the House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate. He has to share power with the Supreme Court. He can't just do whatever. He does have limitations. There are some things he is not permitted lawfully to do. And if he does them anyways, well then, we may give our consent by passively saying nothing about it, doing nothing about it, really. And then that establishes precedent. And in due time, what we'll find is either that president or a future president carries the precedent farther, pushes the envelope farther, sees how much more he can get away with at a certain point. If that's not reined in, if it's not scaled back, the whole thing collapses. It turns into a civil war. It turns into revolution. It turns into the collapse of a country, a nation, a people, descent into chaos. But 
in due time, that will see someone coming in and saying, okay, you know what? Now I'm the authority. But they're not just speaking for themselves. They're speaking with the authority of people who have supported them in various ways, materially supporting them and also logistically supporting them. People who are going to campaign in our context, those people would be pollsters and pundits and commentators, people who give speeches, people who knock on doors, people who hand out flyers. That's all campaign, but in a more traditional sense, a more historical sense, campaigning would be you literally have an army that takes to the field and you're going to vote with arms, with weapons. You're going to vote on the battlefield. We'll see how many people vote for you by how big your army is, how well-equipped, how well-trained. That's your campaign. Campaign manager, yeah. You know what? He's probably a general. He's coordinating the training, the equipping, the marching, the fighting, how to capitalize on this victory and roll that into the next attack, the next strike until all resistance has been quelled, quashed, ultimately silenced, until consent is achieved through strength of arms. In our time, we have cleaned this up, but how brief a time will our way of doing things last? Will it last forever? People have been expecting it's not going to last much longer for a long time, actually, since it was first conceived of, yeah, that's never going to work. Well, it's worked a lot better than those people thought when they were writing two centuries ago. At a certain point, you run into the best buy date. You run into the shelf life of these kinds of institutions. And I expect we will too. But in the meantime, we're getting natural consequences, which themselves, after a fashion, can be a mercy. When the people don't listen to Samuel, they don't listen to wise counsel, they get to suffer the consequences. And those consequences can, in their own way, restrain evil. But those who learn the lessons of history are doomed to watch as those who don't learn the lessons of history repeat the lessons of history. Those who only think in terms of benefits, they get distracted by the shiny object, they go chasing the shiny object. And those who learn the lessons of history at a certain point have to learn the lesson of history that people like Samuel, men like Samuel, are going to be frustrated for a time and then they're going to go through the five stages of grief resulting in, at the end, acceptance. All right, this is what it is. Okay, fine. Don't blame me. Don't say I didn't warn you. And speaking of blame, speaking of warnings, consider a post over at Not The Bee from Harris Rigby, September 15th. So this is a couple of weeks ago, but still timely. Now's a good time to talk about it. Remember how every House Republican voted against the Inflation Reduction Act? Yeah. Here's an embedded tweet from Joe Biden, September 14th, the day before, at noon, a scheduled tweet or X. All it reads is every single one. And here is a picture of all of the House Republicans, all of their, like a yearbook, all of their portraits with their names, what state they represent underneath their pictures in black and white and grayscale. Every House Republican voted against the Inflation Reduction Act. 
Harris Rigby writes, it's hard to make the case that Republicans don't care about the economy when you've got boneheads like Schumer giving up the game. Yesterday, in his sad attempt to talk about Bidenomics versus Maganomics, President Biden pointed out that House Republicans didn't support the Inflation Reduction Act. Never mind that the Inflation Reduction Act did nothing to reduce inflation. Republicans are pro-inflation because we named this bill anti-inflation. Then within two hours of Biden's chiding Republicans for not supporting the Inflation Reduction Act, Chuck Schumer tweeted this. New, because of our Inflation Reduction Act, nearly $75 million is on the way to plant trees across New York. From Buffalo to the Bronx, we are planting the seeds for a cleaner and greener and cooler future for all. Now let that just percolate for a moment. We printed $75 million to plant trees in New York. Harris Rigby continues. Now I'm as pro-tree as the next guy, but how in the world is this considered reducing inflation? Exactly. So here you have an example of someone who does not want to share power, does not want to be told, no, we're not doing that, does not want to be restrained at all. Essentially, the Democrats, Joe Biden in particular, but the Democrats writ large, do not want to share power. They don't want to be told by the Republicans, yeah, mm, we're not a fan of that. Let's negotiate. No, no, we don't want to negotiate. We're going to label you guys as extreme and a threat to democracy all the while in the name of democracy will completely reject the legitimacy of you being a part of the democratic process, you helping to write the laws, pass the laws, negotiate the laws that govern our country. Just like the Inflation Reduction Act did nothing to reduce inflation, actually it made inflation worse because you're printing money, you're spending money, a whole lot of money that we don't have for your Green New Deal initiative. That's really what it was. It wasn't at all, at all, at all reducing inflation. You spent a bunch more money actually increasing inflation, supposedly stimulating the economy, but really more to the point, doing the very thing that Samuel warned the people of Israel, the elders of Israel, would happen if they appointed a king over them, which is to say, what would a king do? What did Samuel warn them a king would do? He would take the best fields, the best vineyards, the best olive orchards, and give them to his servants as rewards, as incentives. Hey, keep on supporting whatever I want to do. Keep on telling me yes, and I will handsomely reward you. It's the same thing. It's the spoil system. Joe Biden is acting like a king. The Democrats are acting as though they don't have to negotiate with Republicans. They're acting as though the extreme thing here is for Republicans to say, no, we're not for that. All the while, ignoring that the extreme thing is that they would expect to not have to negotiate. Like that's actually the extreme thing is that they are shocked to have to share power with Republicans. That's the extreme thing. $75 million to plant trees in New York. That's the extreme thing. $75 million? Really? Seriously? Okay. Increasingly, the Democrats are acting in a monarchical way insofar as the presidency is in a lot of ways our equivalent to the monarchy. Call it what you will, like the article at Wikipedia was pointing out, when it comes down to one ruler, one to rule, one man to rule. Call it the presidency if you want. It's monarchy. If the monarch insists on not sharing power 
and systematically is undercutting everybody who would provide some accountability, some check and balance against his initiatives and require him to negotiate in order to govern together. The extreme here is our drift towards absolute power being concentrated in the presidency. At a certain point, if that happens, if it's not just a passing fancy on the part of a dementiatic and a radical left wing of the Democrat Party, which rules the roost, which dictates terms to the rest of their party, and then also by extension, the Republican Party, and by extension, the country, if it's not just a passing fancy for these people, at a certain point, we'll just stop calling this the presidency, and we'll call it what it is. This is an imperium. Stop calling him President Joe Biden if you're going to let him act like an emperor. If you're going to let him act like an emperor, you might as well just call him Emperor Joe Biden, really. If you're going to let him act like an absolute monarch, call him King Biden, because that's effectively how he's operating. In other news, though, on a related note, Billings Gazette published a piece just yesterday. Brett French wrote the piece, Gold Mine Near Yellowstone Purchased to Avoid Development. Just the headline alone is quite a lot. But get this. You have a group of environmentalists who raised $6.25 million to purchase 1,368 acres of mineral rights, leases, and claims. Bozeman-based, of course. They raised the money and they bought this or they're in the process of buying it to block development of gold mining not in Yellowstone National Park, but on the outskirts. Land just north of Yellowstone National Park will not be mined for gold, they say. Well, now, wait a second. Wait a second. How do you come to the conclusion that that's a good investment? You're going to raise six and a quarter million dollars on what basis? On the basis that it's adjacent to a national park. Okay, so how far of a buffer do you need around a national park to be able to say, okay, yeah, this shouldn't be developed either. You know, it's not enough. It's not enough that the federal government, state governments out West own the lion's share, speaking of lion kings, the lion's share of the land. They reserve it. They keep it from being developed. They keep it from being logged and mined, farmed, ranched in many cases. It's not enough You also are going to have environmentalist groups who say, even just next door, right? Even next door to that land, we don't want it. Where does it end, right? Where does it end, particularly when environmentalist groups are well represented in the executive decisions of this president, who acts as though he is a king. They act as though all of the land in the country is theirs to dispose of, to seize, to take. Yes, if we have to buy it, so it. But then here's the dirty little thing about Inflation Reduction Act type thinking. If the federal government can just print money, they can ram through spending packages to just print money. If they bulk at any call for accountability or sharing power or negotiating with Republicans, if they label extremists, anybody who criticizes their decisions, their actions, their statements, anybody who cross-examines, what you have is the recipe for basically printing out of thin air money 
to buy land to keep it from being developed by private citizens. Yes, corporations are owned by private citizens in most cases. And what? How is that so different from what Samuel warned the people of Israel about with putting a king over themselves? Now, I say all this, right? I say this, and you might be like, oh, well, no, I think you're being a little bit extreme. Or if you haven't embraced a lot of the media narrative and the narrative of the Democrat Party in labeling my warnings here as extreme, you might be saying, well, yeah, but there's nothing that can be done about it. So why complain about it? Well, listen, listen, I'm not complaining alone. I'm also warning. I'm giving you a forecast here. I forecast that if there's not an appetite developed, cultivated, acted on to fundamentally oppose at root the philosophical premise, which is not a love of wisdom, actually, it's a rejection of wisdom, it's folly. If we don't muster up the courage and the gumption and the wherewithal, if we don't roll up our sleeves and oppose these kinds of things, it is going in one direction, and that direction is radical redistribution, confiscation of private property, radical redistribution along collectivist, communistic lines. And even there, when you say communism, oh, okay. A lot of people think communism is everybody shares. No, 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 no. It's more like what Samuel warned about. You appoint a king and you all become slaves. That's what communism is. And it's always the people's representative, whatever you want to call it, it's the people's representative ruling as one man. If you don't know the name of any other government official during the Soviet Union who operated at a lower level, you know the name Lenin, you know the name Stalin, you know the Lenin and Stalin flavor of communism, Marxist-Leninist or Stalinist, you'll hear it called. If you don't know any other government official who helped make the Chinese Communist Party successful in taking over all of China, you at least know Mao Zedong. Why do you know one man's name? Because at the end of the day, it comes down to the strongest ruling. And when you concentrate the power in one man, you can call it everybody's sharing, but what it really amounts to is everybody's a slave. Everybody's a slave to what this guy says is best for the people. And of course, he's going to take his cut so that he stays well-fed, well-housed, well-clothed for all the same reasons that Samuel prophesied a king would take their sons and their daughters, these Israelites, in due time. He's going to take your sons and put them into military service. And he's going to take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers, but then it won't stop there. The king will have to have the very best, and he'll accumulate many wives. He'll have a harem. And all of that, too, will be couched in the terms of This is for the good of the people. This is for the good of the nation. I'm the one who knows best. I'm the one who is king here. On the face of it, you might say, oh, an environmentalist group buying up land to prevent it from being turned into a gold mine. I might not agree with it, but whatever, right? No, 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 no. It's the premise. It's the premise that we're going to stop a private party from accumulating wealth. It's the premise that this is the best land And the best land is not to be owned by the masses. That's what's common here. I have family generations ago on my mom's mom's side, J. Horace McFarland, who helped promote 
conservationism back in the day. He was a friend of Theodore Roosevelt's. In fact, some of the pictures you can find of Teddy Roosevelt at the website for the National Archives are taken by my great-great-uncle, J. Horace McFarland, J. Horace, son of George Fisher McFarland. He promoted this city beautiful movement that swept the country in his day. And that's where a lot of our city parks come from, is this idea. It was a premise. It was a philosophical presupposition. It was an argument at root that just like cities need courthouses and libraries and schools and churches and general stores, we need these places for a city to be well, to be healthy, to be functional, for people in a city to be healthy. We also need beautiful places where common citizens can go and sit and watch and listen to the birds. They can feel the green grass underneath their bare feet. If they take their shoes off, they can go fishing perhaps, throw a frisbee, play fetch with a dog. What was the end goal? The end goal was human flourishing, civic betterment, the welfare of the city, honestly. And think of what a city would be like, a modern city without any parks at all, as bad as inhuman as a lot of cities can be, as sterile, harsh, ugly as a lot of cities can be, how much worse would they be without city parks? But now where are we? Now we're to the point that radical environmentalists have lost the plot and they do the bidding of corrupt politicians who love to take bribes, just like Samuel's sons corrupted justice. They took bribes. We have corrupt politicians, corrupt judges who take bribes to forestall economic development and those things which promote human flourishing here in our country when the best land is taken off of the hands of private citizens because, oh, you shouldn't own that. It goes right back to the things that are associated with a monarchy where he does what? He takes the best fields, the best vineyards, the best olive orchards from you, just like he takes your strongest, fastest, most handsome sons and puts them into military service. He takes your most beautiful, vivacious, charming daughters, and he puts them to work cooking his food, preparing and serving his wine, keeping the palace smelling nice. This is of a piece with it. And if it's presented as, oh, this is a private environmentalist group, where did they get the money? Oh, they got the money in a lot of cases because if you follow it back, they're being sponsored by very wealthy donors who have benefited from the spoil system. They've benefited from legal plunder, as Frederick Bastiat would say, as he would call it. This is not, I guarantee you, 6,250,000 people who each gave a dollar. Guarantee you that. But am I just complaining? No, I'm giving you a forecast. I'm saying this is what we'll get more and more of until it's all out of private hands because this place is too beautiful for you to own it. It wouldn't be fair. You would have not the same as everybody else. That wouldn't be fair to everybody who doesn't have beautiful land to develop into a gold mine right next to Yellowstone National Park. That wouldn't be fair for the good of the people, right? Not for the good of human flourishing, for the good of the people or the planet now, because we've become anti-human, anti-humanists. We're going to have to take that away from you and shelve it. Why? Because the very wealthy people who give the money, they don't need any more money. That's how you know 
<laughs> that they don't need any more money when they give $6.25 million to buy up this kind of acreage and keep it from being turned into a gold mine that is productive, that makes the country wealthier. Who ever heard of such a thing? Well, actually, it's not that new. For another story, though, another way in which this expresses itself, this slide towards autocracy and something more like an imperium, more like a monarchy, less like the system of checks and balances that was given to us in our Constitution and our Bill of Rights. California law capping magazine capacity struck down by a federal judge, Leif LeMahieu writes for the Daily Wire, September 23rd. A California law banning possession and sale of gun magazines holding more than 10 rounds was blocked by a federal judge who said the law was unconstitutional in a decision released on Friday. U.S. District Court for the Southern District of California, Roger Benitez, wrote in a 71-page ruling that law-abiding citizens had constitutional rights to own magazines of greater than 10 rounds and that there was no historic legal precedent giving California the right to pass such a law. Quote, removable firearm magazines of all sizes are necessary components of semi-automatic firearms. Therefore, magazines come within the text of the constitutional declaration that the right to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Because millions of removable firearm magazines able to hold between 10 and 30 rounds are commonly owned by law-abiding citizens for lawful purposes, including self-defense, and because they are reasonably related to service in the militia, the magazines are presumptively within the protection of the Second Amendment, end quote. The judge said that California did not justify, quote, its sweeping ban and dispossession mandate, end quote, which was first passed via ballot initiative back in 2016. Quote, one government solution to a few madmen with guns is a law that makes into criminals responsible, law-abiding people wanting larger magazines simply to protect themselves. The history and tradition of the Second Amendment clearly supports state laws against the use and misuse of firearms with unlawful intent, but not the disarmament of the law-abiding citizen, end quote. Quote, the adoption of the Second Amendment was a freedom calculus decided long ago by our first citizens who cherished individual freedom with its risks more than the subservient security of a British ruler or the smothering safety of domestic lawmakers. The freedom they fought for was worth fighting for then, and that freedom is entitled to be preserved still, end quote. California Governor Gavin Newsom decried the ruling, referring to Benitez as a, quote, right-wing zealot with no regard to human life, end quote. Quote, wake up, America. Our gun safety laws will continue to be thrown out by NRA-owned federal judges until we pass a constitutional amendment to protect our kids and end the gun violence epidemic in America, end quote. Benitez's order won't take effect for 10 days as California Attorney General Rob Bonta moves to get a stay on the ruling. Now, pay close attention to this lather, rinse, repeat tactic of the radical left and the politicians who represent the Democratic Party. The pattern is set, and it is a repeating pattern, and they just keep on replaying the pattern over and over again, and they get the same results And we have to, at a certain point, get wise and put a stop to it. We have to put an end to it. We have to bring accountability to it. It has to be checked. A judge, a legitimate member of our government who is in the role of determining such things, says this is not in keeping with our founding principles. This is not in keeping with 
the Constitution. Now, what's crazy is Gavin Newsom says the solution here is to pass a constitutional amendment, quote, to protect our kids and end the gun violence epidemic in America, end quote, which would seem to, to my way of reading it, affirm subtly the claim made by this judge, Benitez, that the law that California enacted was not constitutional. It's not constitutional. He's right, essentially. But then, ooh, we can't just say he's right. No, no. We're going to be a demagogue about it. We're going to say, wake up, America. Well, who's sleeping? (laughs) Either he's right that this isn't constitutional or he's not right. But then we're going to call this guy NRA-owned, so we're going to undermine his legitimacy, just like Biden calling Republicans extremists for telling them no on the left side of the aisle at any point, telling him no at any point, expecting to govern together and negotiate as representatives, duly elected representatives of their constituents, their states, their districts. Just like that, here's Gavin Newsom referring to Benitez as a right-wing zealot with no regard to human life. That's slanderous. That is a smear. Newsom should have to give an account for saying that this judge, for one, is a zealot, which is to make an attack on his credibility, his soundness of mind, his character. But it goes farther than that to say he's a judge who has no regard for human life just because he issued a ruling that you actually are implicitly agreeing with that the law as it was on the books in California since 2016 was not constitutional. You agree with that because you're saying the solution now is to pass a constitutional amendment. What do you want that constitutional amendment to say? You want it, I think, to repeal the Second Amendment. Actually, you don't want to pass a constitutional amendment. You want to repeal the Second Amendment. Be honest. You don't respect it. You don't like it. You hate it. You don't think it's supposed to be in there. But then this goes back to the slide into monarchy and to autocracy. To say that private citizens shouldn't own the best land, they shouldn't be able to make productive use of the best land, to say that you want to be able to, at any point in time, draft into military service or draft into public service our sons and our daughters because you have decided this is in the common good, something like eminent domain, but with regards to people, to say that private persons should not be allowed to own firearms to defend themselves is to admit without admitting it, you don't regard these people who vote as being your equals. You regard them as something like slaves, something like chattel. You call yourself a Democrat. You're an autocrat, actually. Call them the autocratic party and be done with it. That's what they're for, apparently. But speaking of, what is an autocrat? We talked about monarchy. What is autocracy? Since we do have, as Wikipedia says, by and large, monarchs who are more figureheads, they're more ceremonial, they don't have so much absolute authority the way that in times past, centuries past, most of human history, they did. What is autocracy? Because that's a better word for what it is that Samuel warns the people of Israel they're going to get. They're going to get an autocrat. They think they're going to get a leader of men. They're going to get someone to fight their battles for them. They're going to fit in with the other nations, with the international community. The warning that 
Samuel gives is that you're not going to just have a figurehead. The people of Israel, they want a figurehead and they want a public servant, perhaps kind of sort of. Samuel tells them they're going to get an autocrat. What is an autocrat? Wikipedia says, autocracy is a system of government in which absolute power is held by the ruler, known as an autocrat. It includes most forms of monarchy and dictatorship, while it is contrasted with democracy and feudalism. Various definitions of autocracy exist. They may restrict autocracy to a single individual, or they may also apply autocracy to a group of rulers who wield absolute power. The autocrat has total control over the exercise of civil liberties within the autocracy, choosing under what circumstances they may be exercised, if at all. Governments may also blend elements of autocracy and democracy, forming an anocracy. The concept of autocracy has been recognized in political philosophy since ancient times. Autocrats maintain power through political repression against opposition and co-optation of other influential or powerful members of society. The general public is controlled through indoctrination and propaganda, and an autocracy may attempt to legitimize itself in the eyes of the public through appeals to ideology, religion, birthright, or diplomatic recognition. Some autocracies establish legislatures, unfair elections, or show trials to further exercise control while presenting the appearance of democracy The only limits to autocratic rule are practical considerations in preserving the regime. Autocrats must retain control over the nation's elites and institutions for their will to be exercised, but they must also prevent any other individual or group from gaining significant power or influence. Internal challenges are the most significant threats faced by autocrats as they may lead to a coup d'etat. Autocracy was among the earliest forms of government. It began as despotism which existed throughout the ancient world in the form of chiefdoms, city-states, and empires. Monarchy was the predominant form of autocracy for most of history. Dictatorship became more common in the 19th century, beginning with the Codilos in Latin America and the empires of Napoleon and Napoleon III in Europe. Totalitarian dictatorships developed in the 20th century with the advent of fascist and communist states. Since the dissolution of the Soviet Union in 1991, authoritarian and populist dictatorships have become the most common form of autocracy. Now, let's just take a step back and let's understand that people play games with language all the time. Now, I'm talking about autocracy, and you may be thinking, well, Garrett, how do I know you're not just playing games with language? I say, listen, look, hold on. Look at the features. Don't take my word for it. Look at the features. Open your eyes and stop being such a coward if your cowardice is interfering with you actually seeing this for what it is. Autocrats maintain power through political repression against opposition and co-optation of other influential or powerful members of society. That fits the Democrat Party to a T. That is what the Democrat Party does. That's who they are. That's their character. That's their modus operandi. That's the way they operate. That's the way they function. That's the way they are relating to the other chief political party, and that's also how they relate to anybody of any political party, any political persuasion, even within their own party, who steps out of line and says, well, no, I don't agree with that. No, I'm not for that. Look at the harassment of Democrats even, registered Democrats like RFK Jr. or Joe Manchin or Kristen Sinema. Look at the systematic boxing out and propaganda directed at Republicans, conservatives, coast to coast in recent years. We have been vilified. We've been demonized. We've been silenced. We've been censored. 
Oh, by the way, that's another feature of autocracy. Yes, they may have the legislative form. Yes, they hold elections, but that's not unusual for autocrats. Autocrats will host elections. They will have an election, but it's an unfair election because they make sure that the only votes that count are the ones which maintain the regime. They will have trials, but their trials are not marked by due process. Their trials are show trials to assert dominance over anybody else who would step out of line. When you go on a fishing expedition against political opponents in an election cycle, when you deliver prosecution after prosecution after prosecution, not even needing a conviction because the prosecution itself or the barrage of prosecutions are enough to stop this person from being able to campaign and bring their message to the American people. When you have presidents of the United States, as long as they're Republicans, being removed from social media and having wall-to-wall, nearly universally negative coverage, everything's scandalized, everything is a scandal that they do or they say, or they don't do or they don't say, everybody connected to them is scandalous. Everybody in their sphere, everybody in their family who doesn't denounce them is a villain, a traitor, a bad apple who needs to be plucked and thrown into the fire. When that's the case, you're dealing with propaganda and indoctrination. You're not dealing with true Democrats. They're not actually Democrats any more than the Inflation Reduction Act was about reducing inflation. It wasn't about reducing inflation. It was about getting and securing power, pretending it virtue so as to maintain a free hand behind the scenes. And here's the kicker. We deserve every bit of it because our character is poor. Our gumption to object to the taking of bribes and the perversion of justice is very weak. Our character is very poor. And when that's the case, a people that falls under autocracy, particularly if they start repeating the propaganda of the regime, deserves every bit of the repression that they get. In fact, they're complicit. In fact, they help to sponsor the whole charade by falling silent when they should speak up. They should open their mouth on behalf of those who are being led away to the slaughter. They should open their mouth on behalf of the fatherless and the widow who are preyed upon. They should open their mouth to object, to call for repentance. When they don't, well, then they're complicit. It gets worse if they start to repeat the calls for the destruction of this or that individual uncritically, spreading false reports. Why? Because they saw it in the news. But was it news or was it propaganda? There's a laziness, there's a cowardice, there's a selfishness which deserves these consequences. And actually, it's entirely biblical for me to say that because Samuel said that to the people of Israel. You're only thinking of benefits. You're only looking out for your bottom line as you see it, but actually the consequences are going to directly affect your bottom line. All the cream off the top is going to be taken systematically in every of every one of the spheres where you are so proud, your best fields, your best vineyards, your best olive orchards, your best young men, your best young women, your sons, your daughters, the first 10% of everything you would get as income, yeah, all of it will go to the autocrat. And you'll cry out. You will. You will cry out at a certain point, and God's going to turn a deaf ear. Why? Because you chose this. Samuel 
tried to warn them. They wouldn't listen. No, they said stubbornly, foolishly. And so also we say, no, we want what we want. Even if what we want is to turn a blind eye and to fall silent and to be passive and to stay at home, to be disengaged, disinterested. Oh, I can't be bothered. I'm very busy. Yeah, you're very busy being selfish and short-sighted and foolish. It's entirely biblical for me to warn you that these are the consequences. That said, I can have a good conscience, and this is how I know I'm not just complaining about this. I can have a good conscience in having warned you. That was my job. I don't write the mail. I just deliver it. I can have a good conscience because that's my job. That's what I feel a strong conviction from the good Lord Almighty himself, reading his word, having his spirit dwelling within me, having prayed for years for wisdom, believing that God gives me wisdom. I've done my part. And so this is what it is. This is what it will be. I don't see anything interrupting this in a big way, but we should hope and pray that there would be some interruption. There would be a national revival. There would be days, weeks, months of genuine repentance and contrition, turning away from our sins, doing justice instead of perverting justice. We should pray for that. We should hope for that. We should call for that. Don't be surprised when what you're met with is either crickets or, as the elders of Israel told Samuel, no, like a willful child. Okay, carry on. Go ahead. Stick the fork into the electrical socket. Go ahead. Do it. It'll be on you. What happens when the sparks fly? That's on you. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. I really do have to run. It's a Monday morning. I've got work to do, as always. Thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.